This morning we're going to be talking about a great crisis that we face. And I am not referring to our presidential candidates, regardless of what's going to happen on Tuesday. In fact, we're not only going to talk about a great crisis we face, we're going to talk about the greatest crisis we face in the 21st century and in every century that has ever been. And the, and I kid you not, all joking aside, the greatest crisis that we face, that anyone has ever faced, is the crisis of God. As sinful human beings, every one of us, those who have violated God's standards, His commandments, His laws, whatever you would like to call them, our greatest problem, our greatest crisis is God. God is the problem because He is fair, because He's just, because He gives people what they deserve, and every single one of us deserves condemnation. And so we have the problem of God. As one person said, when we talk about being saved, we should say, save from what? Oh no, we should say, save from whom? It's God. Well, this morning we're not going to emphasize just the problem, but I figured it was a good provocative week, given what's happening in our culture, to remind you the greatest issue of all is this problem of God, but even greater in the positive sense would be God providing a solution, God providing redemption, God providing forgiveness. And I can't think of a better passage than the one that's before us right now, and that would be the third chapter of the Gospel of Jesus according to John. So if you have a Bible, you want to go back to John as we looked at it for Scripture reading. And this morning, Lord willing, we're going to look at John 3, verses 16 through 36. If you're just joining us this morning, we are, as a church, as a church, we are studying the gospel of Jesus according to John, and we so happen to be in the third chapter today, beginning in verse 16. And here we find God's solution to our God problem, if you will. There are three sections um, in 16 to 36. Uh, I don't think you need to divide them. Uh, in, my opinion, in my opinion, you don't really, really need an outline. The emphasis will be the same. That Jesus is the solution. Jesus is the great solution. He's the ultimate solution. He's the one and only solution. He's the one that everyone, you and me, everyone needs to trust in because he's God's solution to our God problem. It's staggering. It's astounding. It's striking. It's awesome. I'm excited about it. At the end of the service, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper, which is a great finale, which is a great closing because we're going to eat and drink to quote Jesus, in remembrance of him. So it'll be a great fitting way for us to be concluding. With no more introduction, let's go ahead and look at that verse that we know so well. Verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. The first thing that I wrote down, 
and I want to encourage you to at least think about before we go any further is surprise. Surprise. God loves the world. I don't naturally think this way as a 21st century American, but as a Bible reader, I say surprise or surprise, surprise. This strikes us, or it's meant to strike us, off guard. Like, what? Like, wow! Awesome, amazing, but really? He does? God loves us? Once again, we're, we're very, very you know, narcissistic, self-consumed, self-centered. And I read this as, as a product of my culture, and I go, yeah, I'm lovable. I'm a good person. I'm nice. I'm good. I'm better. That's right. God loves me. Because I'm lovable. It's just how we think, right? Even unbelievers say Americans are just so self-consumed, it's not even funny. They write books about our narcissistic culture. We think we're better at everything than everybody. That's just how lovable and how good we are. We're just, we're awesome. But we're meant to read this in light of the rest of Scripture, in light of even the verses we're going to go on to read, and we read about God's love for the world, and we go, What? This is awesome. Yes, I'm not trying to take away from that. This is extraordinarily awesome, but it's like, are are you kidding me? And as we look at the details, I think it starts to make a lot more sense. Let's look at some of the details. God loves. That's meant to have some shock value. Especially when we, we look and see He loves what does he love? Who does he love? He, he loves our text. He loves the world. That, that's shocking. Now, world can mean a lot of different things because John uses world in a lot of different ways. So you always want to look at the context. What does he mean by what he says when he says world? And there's two big options, the most common options among serious Bible students. He means not only the Jews. He loves the world because if you have Jews and other people, that's the world. John uses world that way sometimes. Uh, Sign me up for that view. Especially in our context, right? In chapter 2, Jesus is angry because of what's happening in the temple because they're not letting the Gentiles come and worship the one true God. And he's angry because there's supposed to be provision for not just the Jews but for the Gentiles. There's supposed to be provision for the world. He's not God, God is not just the God of the Jews. So that that would fit, and it would fit because Jesus is rebuking the Jews because they they think somehow, you know, they've they've got the corner on the market. But what would also fit in the context of the way John uses world would be badness. John uses world with, with moral overtones, and he uses it with moral overtones in the negative. He does it frequently in his writings. The world would be that which is against God. Okay, that's why our Bibles tell us, don't love the world or the love of the Father is not in you, with you, is the idea. Don't love the, the, the sinful opposition to God. 
So which one is it? I think it's both. Based upon our context, because he's going to go on to say, whoever, not just Jews, Gentiles, whoever believes, I think it can be both. One of my very favorite commentators in the gospel according to John, if I only had one to go with, it would be this one. And this commentator sides uh, and says, it's, it's both, essentially. Listen to this. Jews were familiar with the truth that God loved the children of Israel. Because he did, uniquely. Here, God's love is not restricted by race. It's not just the Jews. It's the world. Even so, God's love is to be admired, not because the world is so big and includes so many people. It's true, though. But because the world is so bad. That would fit the way John uses world. That is the customary connotation of cosmos, world. It says, see chapter 1, verse 9. The world is so wicked that John elsewhere forbids Christians to love it or anything in it. First John chapter 2, verses 15 to 17. So with, with, that, with that in mind, that's, where, that's why I was saying this should shock us, shock value. God loves the world? If I'm a Jew, that's a shocker, especially if I haven't been taught my Old Testament very well. Not just us. But on the other side of it, even more so, I'm going to put more weight here, he loves that which is opposed to him. He loves that which is morally corrupt. He loves bad people who don't deserve to be loved. What? Yeah. It's meant to be extraordinary. As we keep thinking about John 3.16, we have some emphasis regarding either intensity or manner, and here's what I mean by this. It says, he so loved the world. Is it he so loved it? I kind of make fun of that, and I probably shouldn't. Because it is true. He so loved the world. It's, it's so powerful and so extraordinary, it's so intense, that he gave his only son. So, I'm sorry for making fun of that. Intensity. But it can also be explained and translated from the original language, he loved the world in this way. And we don't want to lose sight of that. I probably overplay one way or the other, and I shouldn't. But let's make sure we understand it for sure means, it can mean both, but it for sure means this is how God loved the world. It's... God loved the world in this manner, you could translate it. See, what we want to do is we say, oh, God loves, God loves everyone, and I'm going to tell you how God loves, and I'm going to dictate, and I'm in charge, and here's what I think God does, and here's what He should do. And John 3.16 is so helpful because it says, here's how God loves. God loves the world, true, like this, that He gives His Son. That whoever believes in Him. Oh, that's how God loves. God's love is not, I extend my love to everyone and you can do whatever you want with Jesus. No, no, no. Here's how God loves. It's extraordinary. It's awesome. It's amazing. It's shocking. But is, this, is, this is how He's chosen to love. Oh, it's exciting. We know how God has chosen to love. He's chosen to love like this. And do notice what he's done. Because of his love, his action is, if you look there, he gave his only son. Some old translations say only begotten, and we don't really understand. But other translations, more modern ones, his, his only son. 
The idea is his unique son. It's, it's meant to, to, to show us how extraordinary and how awesome. He didn't have a bunch of sons. His unique, special, one and only son. He gave. That's extraordinary love. That's matchless love. There's nothing like this. And it, it's meant to, to, to be mind-boggling, though, because if we're the world, the morally corrupt ones, He sends His unique, special, extraordinary, only begotten Son for us. God's love is great. God's love is, is, is amazing. He tells us about the scope, the scope of the benefit when he says, whoever believes in him. And based upon the flow of where we've been in John and where we're going, whoever believes in him. It's not just for the Jews. The Old Testament didn't teach that either, that it was only for the Jews, even though they're the unique people of God. But the, the, the blessing, even if you go back to Abraham, was to be for the, all the nations. It's a whosoever kind of idea, but Jesus has to make it clear and John has to make it clear. He's not, he, yes, he's the Messiah. Yes, he's the savior of the Jews, but he's also the savior of whoever believes. Or we could look at that a little bit differently. This is so, I mean, there's so much here. I've always been terrified to preach John 3.16 because there's so much. Whoever believes? It's kind of studious to say, I know that means Jew or Gentile. And it's true. But let's think of it in these terms. This is where we live. This is where I live. I don't know if I'm a Jew or a Gentile, by the way. Uh, I always thought I was a Gentile, and then I met some people from Germany, and they said, you're a Jew. I don't know if the nose gave it away or what it was. <laughs> that sounds terrible. I shouldn't have said that. They said, oh, you're probably a secular Jew. Abendrot. Red sun, setting sun, evening sun. And then they gave me a speech and tried to explain how secular Jews had to adopt last names and they adopted nature names. Instead of Davidson, a religious Jew, if I'm a Jew by heritage but not by belief, I'm going to say I'm... Abendrot, red sun, evening sun, Jew. Don't know if it's true or not, doesn't matter ultimately, because Jesus is the Savior of the world. <laughs> but, but where I was going, before I terribly digressed, is I'm not sure now. No, where I was going was, it's, it's fine for us to say and be kind of academic and say, well, when he says whosoever, it's Jew or Gentile, it doesn't matter, you don't have to be a David's son or Smith. But let's make sure we understand that whosoever applies to us as sinners. Okay? So regardless of how bad you think you are, unforgivable, if God only knew... No, make sure you understand when you're talking about the great, great love of God and the work of Jesus, it's whosoever believes in Him. Whosoever believes in Him. 
And when we're on that topic, let's make sure we understand that when we as quote-unquote good people who are lovable look down at people that we all say are bad people and we say, I know they couldn't become Christians. They're not good. We have no idea what we're talking about because we don't realize how bad we are. And we don't realize how great Jesus is. Jesus comes as the substitute for sinners. Jesus comes to give himself and to be crucified, to to bear the judgment of God Almighty. And so it can be true and is raised from the dead on behalf of everyone who would ever believe. So it can be true, whoever believes. Good people and bad people but there are really no good people. Jesus is going to teach us in the Gospel of John. Whoever believes in Him. Notice the effect as well. Not They will not perish, but have eternal life. Eternal life. Live forever. We're going to learn more about that in John. That's before God, acceptable by God, accepted by God. John 3.16 is awesome. It's misused. It's misemphasized. It's misunderstood. And I think we're just scratching the surface. But it is an awesome, awesome, awesome reality to know that God loved the world. Whoever believes or rests or trusts, that's what belief means, who trusts in Jesus and not in themselves will have eternal life and not perish. In some ways, I hope we're saying, how could this possibly be? And John is going to unpack that for us. Jesus is going to unpack that for us because he came to do all the right things as a substitute because he's going to go to the cross and and atone for rebellion and he's going to be raised from the dead so that this can be true for everyone who trusts in him. That's how it can be. But it really, really, really is extraordinary. So I would encourage you to, to, to try to understand it better, but also to, to, to move beyond that and say, God's love is awesome. God's love is extraordinary. God's love is a, a bit of a mystery because it poses lots of questions. It's exciting. For some of you who like, again, literal kinds of translations, helping, helping you on the understanding side of things, again, it's, it's God love the world, think bad. God love the world. God so loved the world. He loved the world in this way that he gave his unique, special, extraordinary, perfectly qualified, only qualified son that whosoever... Or you could literally translate it, that all, that whosoever believes, that all the believing on him ones, anybody and everybody who believes in him, would not perish but have everlasting life. There's a reason why it's the most famous verse in the whole Bible, or it used to be at least. Really, really is extraordinary.
Well, I suppose we should go to verse 17. Verse 17 says, For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world. We're going to hear in just a little bit, we read the Bible in context, in the flow of things, that the world actually is deserving of condemnation. He doesn't need to send the Son into the world to condemn because the world's already guilty, especially read the moral overtones of a world. But in order that the world, the morally hostile environment, might be saved through Him. Again, wow. Now, once again, there's, there's mystery here, and there's more mystery here when we're only reading this than, than we might imagine, because how could God do this? How could God, who's the just one and, and the holy one who doesn't compromise, who has a law that says if you sin, you will die, how could this possibly be? We would want to say it can't possibly be. But the more we read, the more we're going to learn from the Old Testament and the New that he is the just, right? Let's quote the Apostle Paul. He's the just, the righteous Law upholder, God, and the what? The justifier. He declares people righteous, even though they're not, of what? The one who has faith in Jesus. Because he pays the penalty. It's so great. There's a reason why Christians say, Hallelujah, what a Savior. keep going. Verse, six, uh, verse 18 says, whoever believes, again, belief means trust or depend upon, rely upon. Whoever believes in him, in Jesus, is not condemned. Meant to be shocking. Extraordinary. Whoever believes in Jesus is not condemned. Verse 18 then says, but whoever does not believe is condemned. Already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. There's a way out, right? It's awesome. Matchless. Wonderful. There is a way out. But there's condemnation. In fact, we're all already under the condemnation. And so to not believe in Jesus is to be condemned. You're condemned already. Now, here's a question for you. Why is it that, um, that we in the West, maybe we'll say, wouldn't be just true of us, but let's just talk about us in the here and now, that we in the West don't like this? Isn't it weird? I mean, more, more often than not, when I, if I try to explain this to someone, they don't like to hear it, which is really weird. I mean, so far, it's, it's all meant to be positive. Like, yeah, awesome, amazing. I don't deserve, and yet I can receive. And if I believe in the Son, the only Son, I can, I can have eternal life. Why is it that we hear this and say, I got a problem with that? We do. It's spiritually insane, I would answer, and say it's because of hard-heartedness. 
And it encourages me to know that it is not unique to our day in the quote-unquote West. It happened then. Let's keep reading. Verse 19. So glad you guys asked that question. Verse 19. And this is the judgment. Here's a little commentary. And this is the judgment. Here's God's analysis of what happens with Jesus. The light, that would be Jesus, who has come, uh, the light has come into the world. That would be Jesus, has come into the world. And people love the darkness rather than the light. I wrote in my margin, how could this be? This is insanity. And he tells us, because their works were evil. Nothing new. We hear the good news and we sit in judgment of it and we say, that's bad and wrong. And God says, let me tell you why that is. You see light, you call it darkness. It just shows the moral perversity of us who have been made in God's image and pretend like he's been made in ours and we sit in judgment of him. It really is insane. If there's one God and he has one unique son and he should give us condemnation and yet he gives us salvation if we would only believe in his son and we say, I don't like that, is insanity. But it's talked about right there in our verse because their works were evil. People are evil. That's why people reject Jesus as God's provision You know, I used to think as a Christian, I used to think people didn't believe in Jesus because they just didn't know. Because here I am as a brand new Christian and that's how I'm viewing my life because I don't know that much about sin. I mean, I know I'm a sinner, but I don't really know the depth of it and the complications of it and the effects of it. And I'm just thinking, somebody told me the facts. I didn't know the facts before. I believe the facts. I'm a Christian now. And I was so excited to tell everybody I knew. I was thrilled, college student, anybody and everybody I could talk to, I'm telling them about Jesus. And I knew, wink, wink, that they would be happy that I became a Christian. Because to do otherwise would be insane, right? I mean, once you know the facts, it would be insane to deny the facts. You believe and, right, you're chuckling and boy, was I in for a rude awakening. Oh, man. In fact, I thought perhaps the religious people would be most excited for me. Huh. They they, they treated me like I was a complete crazy person. Patted me on the head. See, there's a... it, It really does make sense. It really is logical. It really is good news about the love of God in Christ. But our commentary here, the inspired commentary, tells us why people don't believe it. They don't love the light, they love the darkness. And our passage will help us to understand how they will come to a place where they will love the light. But God has to do that. Sometimes it's fun being naive though, right? Verse 20. Verse 20. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light. These are pretty strong words, right? Hate's pretty strong. He's talking about people who reject God's provision in Jesus. They reject God's love and sit in judgment of it. He, he says that they're, they're hate. They're haters. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. 
But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works, how about this, I'll slow down a little bit, that his works have been carried out by God. If I'm going to come to Jesus, I've got to come and be exposed for my guiltiness. And that happens. You'd never come to Jesus if you thought you were a good person. You've got to come to Jesus for forgiveness of rebellion, right, atonement, reconciliation. But if and when you do come, it will be made clear and revealed, as the end of the verse says, in verse 21, that it will be clearly seen that his works have been carried out by God. Even me coming, even me coming to Jesus shows and gives evidence that the work of God is in my life. Or I never would have done that. In context, I think that's what he's getting at. Isn't it interesting how when we explain as nicely and kindly as we can, John, the truth, let's just say the truth of John 3, 16, 17, and 18. How oftentimes it's going to be labeled as what? Starts with an H. Hate. That's hateful. What? What God says is love, unbelievers say is hate. Hates the light. They may not say, well, I reject what you're saying because I hate Jesus. But the fact of the matter is it's true. John 1.11 says he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. I mean, so remember that in the original Jewish context. I mean, of all people, they should have said, Yeah! He's here! Love of God! Reconciliation! Forgiveness! Eternal life! And they say, Crucify him. We hate him. Please, once again, let me remind you, because I don't want it to just be the Bible interpretation hour. The promise is there that if you believe in Jesus, whosoever, doesn't matter what kind of person you've been, by race, Jew or Gentile, or regardless of your kind of immorality, because we're all immoral, whoever believes in Him will have eternal life and not perish. Please know that. And if you come to believe in that, I know the work of God has happened in your life. And you can know that too. And you can know that you've been forgiven. You can know you've been reconciled. And you can know that you're right with God. And you can know you have eternal life now. There are some religious institutions that call themselves Christians that say no one can know they have eternal life. And if they say they can, that it's a sin that can't be forgiven. Whoever believes in Him will not perish, but have eternal life. It's awesome. Ready to move on? I'm not. Let's transition just a little bit. This will be a quick section, and we're going to see what a true religious leader looks like. 
We've got lots of religious leaders. They had them back then, and there are lots of bad ones. But here's a standout. And a true religious leader keeps emphasizing what we've heard, and even if it's at their own expense. How about verse 22? After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside. Think Middle Eastern desert, not North American orchard or something right, into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. We know Jesus himself was not baptizing. Chapter 4, verse 2, has his disciples baptizing, not him, but it's said that he's baptizing because they're doing it in his name, on his behalf. Verse 23, John also was baptizing at Anon, meaning springs, place of the springs, place of the waters, near Salim, because water was plentiful. Okay? Literally, there are many waters. So they go to the place of the springs because there are many waters at the place of the springs. There. Let's keep going. And people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Verse 25. Now, a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over, over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he, he's referring to Jesus, he is baptizing and all are going to him. He uses overstatement. All are not going to him because some of the disciples are with Jesus, by the way. We, re, we interpret the Bible in context. All are going to him. There are so many people going to him, especially by comparison to you, John. What do you make of this? Verse 27, John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it's been given him from heaven. That's just like a great truism, but it's in our context. John's going to talk about himself. You know what? The only way a person receives anything is if it's been given to them by God and clearly based on what we're going to read and what we have read, he's talking about himself. My ministry is a God-given ministry. I'm doing what I'm doing because God has called me to do this, not that. He's content with that. Verse 28, you yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior, the Anointed One, but I have been sent before him. This shouldn't be of surprise to you. Remember what I told you earlier. Verse 29, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. This is interesting, maybe not so much for us, but if we read it like Jews, which they were, Israel is referred to as the wife, the bride. God's bride. Again and again and again. Who has the bride? Who has the believing Israel, if you will? The bridegroom. This just makes sense, guys. Verse 29, the friend of the bridegroom. What do we call the, the friend of the bridegroom? The best man. Okay, that, that would be the idea. John's going like to him, liken himself to the best man. The friend of the bridegroom, the best man who stands and hears him, rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. This is awesome. I'm, I'm not here to, to try to pretend like I'm the groom. 
What kind of best man would that be? I fulfill my role in doing best man stuff. That's what I do. I'm excited. Just like on a wedding day. I'm excited. I'm not the center of attention. I'm excited that my best friend is getting married. And here John the Baptist says, I'm not bummed about the diminishing numbers. I'm thrilled. This is what I was sent by God to do. This is wonderful. This is extraordinary. This is how it should be. This is logical. And this, my friends, is what a true religious leader does. Christ, 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 and thrilled and joy-filled because of it, even if it's at their expense. Now let's move on and complete this. He who comes from above. Who's that? Jesus, right? Good guess. If you don't know, just look up at me and say Jesus. He who comes from above, that would be Jesus, is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. Notice the contrast. He who comes from heaven is who? Jesus is above all. What great statements made regarding Jesus. Did you follow the logic? You don't get greater. If someone has come down from heaven and Jesus has, you don't get any greater than him, everyone else, even if they're John the Baptist, the greatest man who ever lived, Matthew eleven eleven. This guy came from heaven. He's the greatest, period. And he emphasizes it twice. Above all, above all. Jesus and no one else is the divine son who's come from heaven. I can't help but pause for a moment and just make a comment or two and bring your attention to the reality that, again, we, we Westerners don't like this. Again, communicate this to a friend who is maybe not as familiar with the Bible as you are and, and, and communicate the reality that Jesus came from heaven. He's above all. He's above all. Maybe no conflict yet, but maybe now introduce maybe another teacher, another leader, another so-and-so. You fill in the blank. Jesus is above all. He's God's unique son. And so Jesus is greater than whoever you're talking about. He's above all. And we don't like that. We, 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 we think things like, well, that's not fair. God's unique son who came to provide reconciliation and redemption? Insane. It's true, it's not fair. There's only one unique son. It's grand. He's above all. It's great. Unless I'm holding on to something that would keep me from trusting in him. What's amazing is Jesus doesn't only come as the one who, who is above all, above all. We're going to see that he's above all and he's come here and he speaks. 
We can be thankful for that, but plenty of people aren't. How about verse 32? He bears witness. He bears witness to what he has seen. See, he's a witness of of heaven. Eyewitness testimony and heard. And yet no one receives his testimony. Dramatic overstatement, but notice the perversity and the the, the absurdity and the, the, the craziness of it. He came and he came here and he's seen heaven. And not only that, he bears witness. He says things, he interprets it, he explains it. And so we have it on good authority. And, and you can be on the positive side and say, this is awesome. Or you can say, I don't, I don't like this at all. Because then it changes what I'm currently believing. If it's not the right thing. When we reject Jesus, it's not because he lacks credibility or he's ignorant. Because he bore witness from what he saw. I listened to an interview this past week with a, uh, a sports figure, now retired, and he was talking about, um, how, about his agnosticism. And he said how there's no, he, I think he called himself a happy agnostic. There's no way we can know if there's a God or not. Now, I would love to respond to that on different levels, but just for our sake this morning, I couldn't convince this person, right? But I want you to know when you hear that, I want you to never, ever, 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 ever forget this thing called the incarnation. The word became flesh and dwelt among us to the point where we, as a human race, touched him. We experienced him. And remember that when he came as God's unique son, he didn't remain the speechless babe in his mother's arms. He bore witness. He spoke. He interpreted. We can know that there's a God. By the way, if you want to attack Christianity, you've got to get rid of this. Priority number one, get rid of incarnation. Priority number one, get rid of all of this because if we can accept and if we accept him coming and becoming a human being, it changes everything. It just changes everything. The incarnation changes everything. The, the bearing witness, speaking Jesus changes everything. And so now I can't say, well, I don't know. I can't. We can never know. Well, we can if there's something called an incarnation. We can if there's a bearing witness. I get fired up about this and worked up about this predominantly toward not agnostics on the radio or on podcasts, but because I'm burdened for you as a Christian to at least think the right way about it. I'm not trying to take away from the cross. I'm not trying to take away from the redemptive work of Christ in his substitutionary atonement. That needs to be emphasized and we emphasize that. But please make sure you understand that it changes everything that he was born in Bethlehem. Changes everything. And ethically, I actually can't say, well, we, we can't know. One of our former pastors here, Rob Clay, I talked to him not that long ago, and he's, um, what, what, what town is he in? Imperial, Nebraska. 
And he said, yeah, Pat, I was at, and I'm not quoting him. This is just in my words. He said, I was at the grocery store the other day or some kind of store. And uh, I, I, saw the, I saw the kid. Well, the kid would be the kid who supposedly went to heaven. That's where he lives. Try pastoring in that town. I would never go to Robbie Clay's church. I would just go to that kid's dad's church. Because he went to heaven. Wink, wink. Robbie said, I said to him, hey, I have some questions for you. And Robbie was going to ask him some questions about his supposed heaven, heaven experience, which is contrary to the Bible anyway, but Robbie wants to engage him and talk to him. And Robbie said, he pretended like I wasn't there. You know, one of these, la, 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 la. I just want you to know that it's unique, by the way, that one came from heaven. And I want you to know he came as the revelation of God so that we can know everything that we need to know because he came and he bore witness and he doesn't ignore our questions. It's extraordinary. How can we know that we can be forgiven and have eternal life? Jesus came from heaven, so he knows. Yeah, but how can we be sure? Because Jesus came from heaven and he talked. I want you to be excited about this. This is awesome. I mean, you don't need to give me anything else. I can know because of credible eyewitness testimony that God accepts me and God loves me. This is just... I almost said fantastic, because maybe, but maybe that's not the right word. I noticed, you notice I didn't say incredible. The next time you hear someone say something that would be contrary, you say, that's incredible. Maybe you'll get it later. <sighs> credible eyewitness testimony. Okay, we have to keep going. Verse 33, whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. You agree with Jesus, you're agreeing with God. 34, for he whom God has sent utters the words of God. Ha ha, there you go. It's a deal changer. For he gives the spirit without measure. The father loves the son and has given all things into his hand. We're going to get into that majorly in John. We can't now. Verse 36, whoever believes in the son, here's the great fitting bracket for the library of John 3. Whoever believes in the son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey, ah, because believing is a moral issue. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God, notice, remains on him. It's already been there, and it's going to stay there because we're all sinners. Don't want to be done, but we have to be done, so let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning, and thank you for the exceptional, extraordinary, credible eyewitness testimony of the one and only Son, the one who came from heaven, the eternal Son, the Lord Jesus, that he became one of us, that he took on flesh, that he spoke, acted, worked, and redeemed. These are exciting things. May we, may we be people who are excited to talk about them and to talk about them lovingly and compassionately and passionately and clearly that we would imitate your love for us and not simply try to give people what they deserve, but we would be willing to talk to them about Jesus. Thank you for the Lord's Supper that we can eat and drink in remembrance of Jesus' finished work. Uh, it's, it's our only hope. 
please stir our hearts mightily so that we might worship you appropriately. In Jesus' name, amen.